and welcome to Staff Picks, the podcast for movie nerds by movie nerds. As always, I'm Mario Lanza, and I am your host on our journey through the movies out there that just need a little more love. And today's episode is kind of an experiment. We are doing something different today, so your ears might perk up if you're used to the normal beats of staff picks. This will be a little different because what I have done on this episode is I have gone out and found an obscure movie that not a lot of people know. And it's called Citizen Ruth. It's a comedy from 1996. One of my personal favorite movies of the last, you know, 30 years, but it's not very widely known. And I had the hardest time finding someone else who knows this movie or loves it as much as I do. So I'm like, well, there's two paths I can take in that case. I can just keep searching and keep searching until I find another Citizen Ruth fan like me. And I was having the the hardest time doing that. And eventually I just got bored of waiting. I can't wait. I have to talk about this movie. This was one of the first probably top 10 movies I wanted to talk about when I sat down to put together this show. This is perfect for this type of show. It's just obscure, but smart, and it really should be more widely known, and nobody does know about it. So again, this is a personal favorite that I've been waiting to talk about for two years. So with that being said, what I did is I'm like, you know, I know a lot of smart people out there who run podcasts, who are fun to listen to, who have an audience. How about I take somebody who I know is good on a podcast and is good with an audience and ask them to watch this movie for the first time and then come on the podcast immediately and talk about it. So basically the goal is here is someone who could not possibly love this movie as much as I do. And my goal is to get them to love it over the course of 90 minutes. So I'm just letting you know this is a little different type of podcast. My co-host is not as familiar with this movie as I am, but you don't have to worry because I know this movie inside and out and I think it'll be really and a really interesting discussion for a couple reasons, and one of them I'll bring up right at the start, and you'll hear from his accent why it'll be especially interesting. So, here we go. To talk about Citizen Ruth, uh, he is a podcaster, very well known in the Survivor online community, uh, has a podcast called uh, part of the called the Dom and Collins Show, which is very widely respected. I've been on his show before. He's kind of reciprocating and coming on my show, but he... Uh, I'm very excited to have him on Staff Picks. Welcome to talk about Citizen Ruth, Dom Harvey. Hello, thank you. It's uh, it, it's great to be in here as your your guinea pig for this experiment. And I, I will say on the record, I was not told what the logic was behind the choice of me uh, beforehand when you first reached out. God, it has to be 12, 18 months ago to, to cover this movie. So I was mystified as to why I was chosen. And it's uh, it's nice to know now that I was actually chosen because I would know uh, as, as little as possible about this movie coming in. You know, uh, this is not typically the recipe for great podcasting, but hopefully uh, I can deliver on that front. And yeah, I, I'm coming to this knowing about as much as 99% of people who have seen this movie, which, as you said, is not a high number of people, which is, I have seen this movie. And I've seen it twice, in fact. You know, I've seen it more than uh, a lot of those others. So uh, I I may be the second most informed uh, Citizen Ruth fanboy out there, but it's glad to be here with the, the number one. First off, let's get the obvious question out of the way. You saw the movie for the first time just at my request, and you at least liked it, right? Yeah, I thought it was a fun movie. Uh, I wasn't too familiar with the uh, Alexander Payne filmography. Um, yeah, I, I knew who he was and knew what he had a reputation for, but to see like his early work was was interesting to start with. And of course, you have this uh, sublime performance by Laura Dern, who it was still well-known back at the time, coming off this uh, performance in Jurassic Park and so on. So she was a known quantity. And this isn't one of those movies where you can tell why it's obscure, because they just couldn't convince anybody who was worth their salt to, to jump on board. Uh, they, had a, they had a good cast for 
this one. Good premise, good directing, and so on. Uh, so, yeah, I, I thought it worked really well, even though, as a director, he was still working out some of the kinks. Okay, yeah, we'll go into the plot and the storyline of this movie, but I want to talk about the elephant in the room right away. Why I specifically picked you, Dom, to be my guinea pig here is because for people who have seen this movie, you may already know this. If you have not, you won't know this. This movie is a very scathing indictment on middle America, especially the states of like Nebraska, Iowa, the middle section of the country, where <laughs> people can be very fanatical in their political beliefs. And Alexander Payne, if people know his movies, he loves to thumb his nose at middle America because that's where he's from. He's from Nebraska. He's made these amazing movies. Election, most people may know. About Schmidt is the other one. Uh, what's the other one? Sideways. He has a whole skew, uh, slew of movies where he makes them in small towns. But this is his first, where he just basically goes nuclear on the Midwest and decides to make fun of everybody in Nebraska. And this is why I picked Dom, because you, from as we can tell from your accent, are not from Nebraska, are you? I, I'm not, but it gives me the, the journalistic objectivity I need to uh, make fun of Nebraska as hard as possible. So in a way, I'm the perfect fit for this. <laughs> so going into this movie, or even after watching this movie, what are you aware of in the state of Nebraska? Like, what is your thought on the Midwest of the United States? It seems like a truly terrifying place, and uh, I, I don't know how much of this is uh, specific to Nebraska, if this is a Nebraskan thing, or just an American thing, uh, but uh, certainly a lot to uh, be wary of if I were ever to end up there somehow. <laughs> All right, perfect. You're the perfect candidate for this movie. This is why, because he has no knowledge whatsoever of politics in small towns in the Midwestern United States. So <laughs> that right now, I'm telling you right now, now you know why you are my esteemed guest here. Yes, I'd like to think, you know, I'm a reasonably well-informed person, and I have some knowledge of things going on in the world, but in the same way that someone like peering in on a zoo exhibit does, you know, I, I'm approaching it from that basis here. So really no personal grounding in any of this at all, and so I can uh, disclaim about the, uh, the ills of Nebraska with uh, as much abandon as I like. Now, have you seen any other Alexander Payne movies? I'm curious. Uh, so I, I saw Election back in the day and, and really enjoyed that. And uh, that was how I was introduced to him as a director, like Tracy Flick as a character. You know, the, you say the name, people know what you mean still after 20 years, um, but wasn't too familiar with him outside of that. So uh, I, this was new in quite a few different senses for me. OK, yeah. For people who don't know, I'll fill you in. Election came out in 1999. It was by Alexander Payne, a very scathing indictment. Once again, I love that uh, phrase. That's Alexander Payne in a nutshell of small town politics as seen through the eyes of two high school students battling out for student body presidents. And it was a very famous, notable movie for its time. 1999, maybe my favorite movie of 1999. It's fantastic. He followed it up with About Schmidt, which is a Jack Nicholson vehicle. Now, have you seen that one, Dom? No, I haven't. Okay. About Schmidt and Election are so similar. Like, if you like one, you'll like the other. The tone, the storytelling, just the way Alexander Payne sets up a story are so similar. So I would, right off the bat, highly recommend you see that one as well someday. Oh, yeah. I, I plan to cross off all of his movies on the list at some point. And, you know, three months into quarantine, the, the list of stuff I haven't seen is running low. So uh, we'll, we'll get to those sooner rather than later. OK, well, I'm very excited because, like, I think Alexander Payne might be my favorite director in the world. It's either him or Sam Raimi. Those two the guys I just love. But so Alexander Payne made Election and then About Schmidt. And at some point people realized, hey, he had another movie before Election. 
And that's this one, Citizen Ruth. And I will say, I only know about it because I listened to all the DVD commentaries for these movies. And Alexander Payne pimped the shit out of Citizen Ruth all throughout the election DVD uh, commentary. So that's the only reason I know about it. And then my wife and I watched it. I'm like, oh my God, this is a masterpiece. How do people not know about this? Yeah, I think there was some still in the election where if you took a freeze frame of... uh... Uh, some some of the text that was on like the back of a, a package or something, it would make a reference to Citizen Ruth, and th- there were a few callbacks in there uh, to the movie. And yeah, if you are a diehard Alexander Payne fan, you'll know about it eventually, and you'll discover it eventually. But when the, the average film buff talks about Alexander Payne, this isn't in the top three or four movies that even comes up. You know, you have to ch- uh, talk their brain off for a long time before this even uh, enters the conversation. Yeah, and again, that's what we're trying to fix today. So this is what you're here to do, Dom. Excellent. And would you would you say that uh, Alexander Payne might be your, your favorite director of all time? How contrarian of an opinion is that? Is that just Mario being Mario or are you part of a, a wider herd here? No, that's not that contrarian. There's a lot of people that really love Alexander Payne, but he doesn't make huge blockbusters. So there would be a lot of people like me. It's not really a, a, a controversial opinion to say you like Alexander Payne. It tends to be you get huge movie nerds that even know who he is because he's not that widely known. Yeah, and whenever you have a uh, a cult classic director or franchise or whatever, there's there's always a segment of that fan base that takes pride in like knowing them before they were cool or being familiar with their more obscure early work. And in some cases, that work is you know the affection that people have for it is driven mostly by nostalgia or their own form of it. And when you look at it with a more objective eye, it doesn't really stand up to scrutiny all that well. Coming to Citizen Ruth with some knowledge of Alexander Payne, but no like investment in seeing the movie one way or another, I liked it. I, I thought it really uh, held up well. And uh, yeah, I'm excited to to be part of this project uh, to get more people to see it. Okay, yeah. And the other thing about Alexander Payne, and you were kind of hinting at it right there, is that this is his first movie. I cannot think of a more ballsy first movie anybody has ever <laughs> had. Like, can you imagine Steven Spielberg agreeing to direct this movie? Yeah, if you want to announce yourself on the scene, I guess this is a good way to do it. If you, if your belief is any attention is uh, good attention, uh, but I, I wonder if that kind of cuts both ways because when you are an established director, in a sense you have more freedom to do what you want when you have more power and uh, you're, you're more trusted to uh, take a chance on a concept like this. But at the same time, there are more expectations you have to fulfill. Whereas when Alexander Payne is uh, starting out his career making Citizen Ruth, no one really cares if this movie succeeds one way or the other. So he can afford to go out on a limb and take this chance, knowing that if it flops, hey, at least he went down in a blaze of glory. And if it succeeds, this is uh, this will get a lot of attention and this is his uh, ticket to the top. I'm glad you phrased it that way. If it succeeds, great. If it fails, it goes down in a blaze of glory. Because we have not mentioned what this movie is about yet. No, I, let's uh, let's fill the audience in here. This movie is the first movie and probably only movie you are ever going to see that is a comedy about the abortion debate. Uh, yeah, and not just in some like abstract sense where you know, abortion is a plot line that you it is a, a stepping stone to something else. This is the whole point that the explicit purpose of this movie is to satirize both sides of the abortion debate. And when we say both sides, it, it's not like it it shies away from taking a position or from uh, lampooning both parties in equal measure. It, he digs a knife in uh, to, to anyone who's standing around him as often as he can. And uh, there's really no sympathetic character in this movie. And that's part of what makes it so great. You know, there's no way to distill any kind of nice uh, fluffy narrative out of this. 
And it's wonderful because that's what everybody says when they talk about election. They're like, this movie's great because there's no heroes in this movie. It's so savage and so cutting and so amazing and funny in just this Midwestern, passive-aggressive, Alexander Payne way. And I'm like, watch Citizen Ruth. It's the exact same thing. You just don't know about it yet. Right. I wonder if, in a way, it's easier to do that with a topic as controversial as abortion, uh, where if you... You take a stance that seems to be uh, leaning more on one side or the other, then you'll get a lot of criticism from the side that uh, from that other side who thinks they were unfairly treated. Um, and then if you kind of shy away from making these really harsh criticisms, then both sides feel like you haven't dug into the other side uh, enough. So why not just uh, take the gloves off, take the mask off and just just lay into <laughs> to, uh, the whole debate as much as you can? That almost feels like the, the safer option in a way. It is, but I will clarify that a little bit, that Alexander Payne, I've read a bunch of interviews where he talks about this movie, and again, I cannot overstate enough how ballsy this is for somebody's first movie, but he said it's not a movie about the abortion debate, really, it's about fanaticism. It's about when people have an opinion, and again, people that go into the abortion debate, and I don't really care what people's opinions are one way or another, I mean, everyone goes into it with the best of intentions. One side, we want to protect the mother's rights. The other side, we want to protect the baby's rights. I mean, they all go into it with the best of intentions, but at a certain point, people get devolved into fanaticism, where it's my team against yours. And that's the whole point of this movie is that Alexander Payne has said it's about people that, you know, just get wrapped up in this. My side has to be your side and they forget about the people in the middle that are stuck there. And that's why I think this movie is so much fun to watch because it makes a good point, too, that like individuals get lost in this. Only in Alexander Payne, in true Alexander Payne fashion, he puts the least sympathetic person right in the middle as our hero. Yeah, and it's a topic that inevitably ends up devolving into fanaticism, even with people who, in most cases, are otherwise uh, reasonable. Because on one side, you have people who think the concept of abortion is literally murder, and they're, they're, trying, they're saving lives in the process by uh, convincing women not to go through with it. And on the other side, you have uh, people who are convinced that, well, you have these religious fanatics trying to control women's bodies and women's autonomy. So there's no way that can't be heated. And so if you're someone like Alexander Payne, who has a, a mischievous streak about him, this is grist for your mill. This is a, a perfect topic to, to harness for a movie like this. And at that point you made about it being more about the fanaticism than the actual topic itself, that's really highlighted uh, in the final scene of the movie where we see <laughs> Ruth just like, not, not even having to do much to disguise herself as she's walking away from the abortion clinic, but as this this war is being waged on her, on her behalf by proxy uh, for women everywhere around her, and she's able to just walk off into the sunset, clutching her bag full of money. Yeah, we will talk about that for people who have not seen this movie. This movie has one of my all-time favorite movie endings because it's so goddamn cynical and it fits the movie so perfectly. So I'm glad you highlighted that already because I love that ending so much. Yeah, and I love the choice as well to make Ruth into this you end up kind of having sympathy for her hustle uh, by a certain point, but the fact that she is just nakedly this unsympathetic, terrible person, um, because so often in a political context, the abortion debate comes down to uh, finding a sympathetic figurehead for it. You know, it's uh, if you're on the pro-choice side, well, do you want to highlight someone who already has had several kids and who can't care for them, they've been taken away and uh, she's a drug addict and so on? Or do you highlight someone who uh, is you know, the, the, the perfect uh, American girl next door who you know, just ends up in a position where they're, they're needing to have an abortion and it's much easier to kind of frame the narrative you want to frame around 
the the ideal front person for it and the same thing for the other side too ruth is nobody's perfect front woman you know no one wants to have ruth as a representative but uh, they, they just end up in that position because that's that's who she is she's the woman of the moment and they would much rather have someone who can uh you know it's not going to be like outing them as a mole to the you know uh to their own people or uh cursing out tv interviewers and so on but <laughs> this is ruth and yeah that's that's who you've got so that's who you have to deal with yeah okay i'll give you the short version and then we will walk through the plot later and it's really what dom was talking about that ruth stoops played by laura dern we'll talk about laura dern in a second because i am a huge laura dern fan but she is the greatest lead character in a movie because she's terrible she is <laughs> what would how would you describe ruth stoops as someone who has never seen this movie before well, I, I would quote uh, Laura and herself, who even to this day quotes uh, or, or cites Ruth Stoops as one of her favorite roles. And, and she said that, quote, I've never fallen in love with a character more. There was not a scene where I wasn't barfing or farting or vomiting or burping. I was just a disgusting mess. And I think that that sums it up pretty well. Yeah. Ruth is someone who lives in a flop house, gets drunk every minute of the day. Her number one love in life is huffing paint fumes and passing out behind a dumpster. And basically she will become the symbol of both sides of the abortion debate. And it's wonderful because now here, here's my first mission why I'll get you to love this movie, Dom. Is this ep this movie is like an episode of Seinfeld because the characters have no story arc whatsoever. Nobody changes, nobody learns, nobody grows in this movie. They're all the exact same person at the end of the movie, even though a huge war has been fought. That's a great point. There is basically no subtlety, no complexity to any of this at all. It's as soon as a character arrives on screen, you know who they are, and that's exactly who they are by the end of the movie too. There's no uh, character development, personality development, uh, no. Uh, moral equivocation of any kind is everyone is who they appear to be <laughs> again so blunt so cynical i still cannot believe this is somebody's debut movie and it does lead to a question though could a movie like this exist in england or is this specifically an american story that could only happen here what do you think so it's a combination of this incredibly heated politically charged topic at, at the center of things and also just something about the american national character that combines to, to make this movie what it is you could definitely make movies lampooning every aspect of uh of the uk and people have and people will continue to do that but it would look very different from this i mean that you if you showed this movie to someone who was not like well traveled well cultured or anything they could still pinpoint this as this is quintessentially an american movie <laughs> good well that's what i'm hoping because the american midwest for people who don't know, most people know this, but I have international listeners. The, the American Midwest, very conservative, very religious. Um, it's much different than like New York and Los Angeles. And I'm not saying one is better than the other because I have lots of family all over the country. I know this mindset very well. But it is hilarious to see this movie play out in Nebraska, the most benign of all places where Alexander Payne sets most of his movies, including one called literally Nebraska, another movie. Have you seen that one? No. That is fantastic. Watch that one. It's it's less cynical than this one, though. It's got more heart. Yeah, my understanding is Nebraska only comes up in any context when it's part of a list of, oh, these are the, the 10 Midwestern states that we're talking about, or someone has a very pointed criticism of Nebraska. No one uh, is looking back fondly on their days growing up in Lincoln or Omaha or whatever. Well, I'm sure there are some people are, but they're not the people you'd normally hear about in like the media and on the Internet. Right. And especially in like the, the New York or L.A. Uh, theater and film scenes, 
it is people who have never set foot in Nebraska and have uh, no plans to, or people who grow up in states and small towns exactly like Nebraska and have been trying to escape from that their whole life, and there's really uh, no in-between. It's people who have fled Nebraska in a hot air balloon. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, we're going to dive into the plot here, and I just love this movie so much, I'm, I'm really aching to go, but let's talk about Laura Dern here. Who I have to say, and I've argued this for years, I've written about this movie on my website, I've written about Laura Dern specifically, she should have gotten some kind of an award for this role, because I have never seen a highly acclaimed actress who is apparently a very nice person, very cool person, I've seen her in interviews, she really has seemed pretty hip and chill and awesome, I've never seen an actress look this ugly intentionally for a role before. And you can tell that she loves the role as well. Like that quote I gave about this being one of her favorite roles, even after her, her long and storied career, it makes a lot of sense. And you, you can tell watching this, she is reveling and just uh, easing into the role. And uh, I, I wouldn't call it method acting. Maybe that's too critical of her. Um, but she, she knows how to do this. And she really puts all of those talents uh, on display here. And she's the perfect actress for Ruth because, again, for people who have not seen this movie, Ruth will spend most of the, the movie passed out or splayed or running and tripping and falling or just being a disaster. And Laura Dern is like six feet tall and she's all legs. She looks like a giraffe. And it's hilarious <laughs> to watch her just doing this shtick that you wouldn't normally expect from her. She's such a highly respected actress that, again, she should have had a special award just for this movie. They should give out the Laura Dern Award for this movie. It's a great study in physical comedy, for sure. And, yeah, there's been a lot of hype over her performance in Marriage Story or whatever. And that, that's a talk of award season. But, honestly, she should have got more recognition 23 years ago or 24 years ago when all of this was happening. And Alexander Payne should have as well. I, I believe this is... Uh, still his only movie that wasn't uh, didn't receive a nomination for any kind of uh, award and honestly that's criminal not not that his other movies didn't deserve the nominations they got but th this should have been in the conversation uh, as well all right so it sounds like i'm already selling you on this the fact that this movie is great and people should love it yeah i mean there's you picked an easy mark here you know there's not too much uh, convincing needed Okay. All right. So we're going to dive into this movie here. Again, movie that hardly anybody knows. I could not recommend this enough. This is like Mario in a nutshell, this movie. Just making fun of the Midwest, Alexander Payne stuff. It's like really offensive. And I love stuff when they take a really vulgar character and having them interact with very put together non vulgar characters. And you will see that a lot in this movie where people are trying to explain Bible verses to Ruth and she's like calling them a stupid cunt. And so if you like blunt humor like that, this is right up your alley. Yeah, and it's the perfect contrast with that um, that Midwestern politeness, where you might be thinking all sorts of things. You know, she's oh, she's frightfully vulgar, but you would never show that. You know, you you always keep this uh, this put together veneer on. And Ruth does not have one inch of that veneer whatsoever. You know, Ruth is <laughs> is what she says on the ten. <laughs> okay, and as befitting a movie like this, this movie, again, it's so polarizing and so offensive, but it's so charming and well done, you're going to fall in love with it. It could only start with in, in one way. The only way Citizen Ruth could begin was Ruth getting screwed, basically. <laughs> yeah, Ruth uh, possibly getting impregnated. Hard to say uh, if this was the actual immaculate conception or not. But uh, yeah, this is the, the opening scene of the movie. And th this sets a tone for the rest of it. And uh, w one of the great things about Citizen Ruth is it really never lets its, its foot off the gas pedal. It's, you, you start in the middle uh, of the action here there's no build-up nothing like that it doesn't take its time uh to get good like it's you know uh, just like ruth just like every character in the movie you see ruth you know what she's about you see this movie uh, a minute in you know what this movie is about 
Yeah. <laughs> and again, I should point out once again, I guess I haven't pointed this out yet. The title of this movie, Citizen Ruth, is an homage to Citizen Kane, perhaps the most beloved of all movies. So Alexander Payne swinging right for the fences, right from the start, saying, hey, this is just your average human being who's been caught up in a bad situation. And we start with her drunk in a flop house being impregnated by a boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. as i said you want to make your uh directorial debut this is a great way to do it yeah so ruth gets banged and then gets thrown out of the uh flop house by her boyfriend and he throws her tv out and she's like come on man i got nowhere to go and within the first five minutes she gets drunk she gets uh, banged and then she starts huffing brake fluid so this is this is our hero ladies and gentlemen and then when she runs out, she's able to uh, con her, her brother-in-law out of $15 to go right back to the hardware store and get some uh, get, get some more materials. <laughs> yes, and that cannot be oversaid enough that all Ruth wants throughout this whole movie, there's nothing she wants more than to get some spray paint and huff it, which is right. <laughs> such a wonderful character choice. <laughs> And when she's uh, weighing up these offers for $15,000 or $30,000 to, to keep the baby or get rid of the baby, she's thinking about that. The, the currency she's thinking of is in terms of cans of, of paint fluid. You know, that's, those are, that's her entire worldview at this point. Now, do people huff spray paint in England or is that more of an American Midwest thing? I think that's more of a global phenomenon. I don't know if it's restricted to any one place or another. Uh, I'm sure there are like uh, beloved British brands of, of glue that people are opening to, to get high and uh, send themselves to the hospital. But uh, outside of that, there's not much uh, variation, I think. <laughs> okay, so here we go. We're 10 minutes into the movie. We found out all Ruth does is have sex, get banged, and get high. That's all she cares about. Her brother has kicked her out of the house because she always comes by looking for money. And he's like, no, I'm never, never come back here again. You're a bad influence on my kids. So she goes out. He gives her 20 bucks. She goes and buys lottery tickets and brake fluid, gets high and passes out. And we get this wonderful scene, which I know Laura Dern must have had fun in this scene, where the cops have to rescue her from behind a dumpster because she's passed out. And when they arrest her, she vomits all over their car. Of course. I, there's no other way that that possibly could have gone. I, mostly, I'm just surprised in uh, Alexander Payne's restraint and not having her win the lottery with those tickets and then go on some epic bender for the remaining 85 minutes of the movie. But I, I guess, uh, you know, he, he has to, to keep this on the rail somehow. I would have loved to see Ruth with, you know, $30 million, how fast she could blow that. That would be amazing. <laughs> yeah, it, that would definitely be a character study in something, but maybe uh, something a little different. Okay, so, yeah, Ruth has been arrested, and there's even a, a little line here, the cop, when they find out this is Ruth. Apparently, Ruth passes out and gets uh, arrested all the time. This has happened like 30 times in the last 12 months. And one of them even jokes, we should take her to the pound to get spayed. Yeah, this is just another day at the office for them and for Ruth. You know, they, they've had the same, same uh, conversation, same interaction dozens of times before. Yeah. Okay. She's a known quantity. Again, we're in Omaha, Nebraska, very small town. The cops would know this person inside and out. She's always getting arrested. But there's a wrinkle in her story, and this will lead to the crux of this whole movie, is that they take her to the doctor. She's all, you know, still got spray paint around her face, which I love. And they find out that she's pregnant. And because she's pregnant, there's a judge that's going to make an example out of her. And I'm not entirely sure the legality of this ruling, but what exactly does he say to her? Uh, so he just lets her have it. You know, he is uh, very familiar with Ruth Soup at this point, and uh, you know, he he has places to go, people to see. Uh, he's not taking any shit from Ruth. 
Yeah, this is, he's going to set an example. And again, this movie, despite it being a nothing movie made by a nobody, it has a huge cast. We're going to see Burt Reynolds later. We're going to see Tippi Hedren. Uh, who else? Swoozy Kurtz is in this. But this is David Graff, who played Tackleberry in the Police Academy movies. Now, Dom, I would, I would assume, knowing your pedigree, you are not familiar with the Police Academy movies. I, I know of them. I do not know them. <laughs> Okay, this is my favorite character, Tackleberry, who's a crazy redneck cop. He plays the judge here. But he, he basically lays down the law to Ruth. He says, you know, we've stripped four of your children over the years. You're an unfit mother. You've been arrested 16 times in the past year. You've been to rehab six times. Is there any way you can understand the depths of your, your irresponsibility? And she just sits there because she doesn't really know what to say. She's an idiot. <laughs> and he's like, you sicken me. And then he says, but... Because you're pregnant, this time it's different. You have a fetus in you. By huffing paint, you are endangering the fetus. I'm going to charge you with a felony. You're going to prison. And Ruth says, no, that's not fair. You can't do that. He's like, bullshit, I can't. I'm sending you to jail. And so Ruth is now facing prison time for the first time in her life, an extended prison time for endangering a baby. And this is where the plot of the movie comes in because she will meet the baby savers. Yeah, and when she goes for that initial medical examination, uh, the the doctor and his psychic are fantastic. Just the, these minor characters who somehow add so much life to this uh, this movie early on. And the, I, I love the the choice of setting this in like this darkened room, almost as if this is like a police interrogation or something. It, it feels very dark, very sterile. Uh, and so the focus is entirely on this doctor who, uh, in, in his like intimidating form of jollity is just really uh insinuating to ruth like ruth you understand what's going on here right and ruth is too high to understand the english language let alone you know the the ethics of abortion or whatever so she's just nodding along and going on with it um but when she finally snaps the the expressions on their faces are incredible especially the uh the the woman next to him is fantastic okay yeah i want to get to that scene let's okay let's lead into that so Ruth has been told, you're going to jail because you endangered a fetus. This is the first time it's ever been a felony. But then the judge kind of pulls her aside and says, you know, there's one way to reduce these charges, have an abortion. And again, I'm not entirely sure that's legal for a judge to suggest that. But he says, have an abortion, the charges will be reduced. And to Ruth, this is great. Okay, sure, why not? And so Ruth gets put into a holding cell, and she gets put inadvertently into this group called the Baby Savers. And this is Mary Kay Play, Swoozy Kurtz, just a bunch of Midwest Karens, basically, who go around and block abortion clinics. And they've been arrested for protesting an abortion clinic. And they're in a jail cell singing, we're the soldiers of Christ, we're the saviors of love or something like that. And they see poor Ruth and they're crying and they're like, what's wrong? And they decide to basically adopt her and make her their pet. Yeah, and and this is setting a theme throughout the movie of Ruth is always a pawn in a, a larger game being played by other people. And Ruth, as a person with her own agency, never really comes through at any point. Um, and is almost weirdly liberating in that ending that, that we mentioned, where she finally gets to be her own person by just being completely anonymous, even though this is meant to be all about her. She's, this is the entire point of the scene. Uh, she gets to just fade into the background uh, like anyone else. <laughs> but yeah, she is now going to be the face of the anti-abortion crowd because the baby savers have adopted her and they find out about the ruling. The judge said you have to have an abortion to stay, to stay out of jail. And they're like, hell no, that would not fly. And so they bail Ruth out of jail. They bring her back to their house and basically adopt her. And we meet the wonderful family here, the Stonies. 
I love these. Now, I'm as a non-American Midwestern, I'm dying to know your thoughts on Norm and uh, what is her, her Norm and uh, Gail Stoney. Gail, yeah. yeah. I, I, I thought Norm Stoney was a, an excellent character, and we, we see several signs of him early on because he's not so subtly hinting at it to Ruth that he used to be a bad boy back in the day, you know, before he was a, a born again Christian. And in a different timeline, he's the one pounding away at Ruth in the opening scene of the movie. <laughs> uh, and you know, if he had his way, if uh, if if Gail was turning a blind eye. I was out of the house you get the sense he might be doing it again uh but either way you, you get the sense that his interest in ruth is not entirely uh sincere <laughs> yeah this is where alexander payne just loves twisting the knife into these midwest you know self-righteous people and norm stoney one of my favorite characters in this movie played by the wonderful kurtwood smith who always plays a villain in movies he's in, like dead poet society i think he might be in robocop if i recall but he's all he's he's the the super Christian guy, the leader of the the baby savers, and they they adopt Ruth and bring her back to the house. And this is the first example of Ruth just not fitting in with these self righteous Midwesterners. Yeah, although she has a uh, a kindred spirit of sorts in uh, Cheryl, who's their daughter, who predictably is a. Uh sneaking out and getting up to, to fun herself. But it turns out that even Cheryl is no match for Ruth's own brand of uh, debauchery. <laughs> okay, yeah, so there's a wonderful scene. And again, I, I love getting the English guy's impressions of this, where they go back to the American Midwest house in the Midwest, and they're like, oh, Ruth, welcome. Our our house is your house. Mi casa, su casa. And Ruth tries to sit on the couch, and they're like, no, no, nobody sits on that couch. Get off that couch. <laughs> This is hypocritical from day one, but Ruth is trying to fit in because Ruth feels like she's won the lottery. These rich people have adopted her and are going to help her turn her life around. And we get the, the barbecue scene where they're, they're, uh, the Stonies are outdoors having a barbecue, and they're treating Ruth to her first American Midwest barbecue. And I, did you like what stands out to you about this scene? With like the you had the gun talk and the airplane flying overhead and the neighbors all crammed against each other. Is this what you would imagine the Midwest is probably like? Yeah, and that's the beauty of this, uh, the, the kind of scene setting for this movie, the, the world building, is that it doesn't really need to be that complicated because the whole point is to be that stereotype and to build it up. And so uh, when Ruth is in uh, the Stoney's house, it's exactly as you'd expect a couple like the Stoney is the Stonies. This is how you imagine the house to be, uh, and you know you you would get that prediction right every time. And then likewise, when she is in uh, a different setting later on, where she gets kind of uh, kidnapped, I guess against her will, uh, that's exactly how you'd expect that to be too. So uh, the the world building is kind of both uh, strong and effortless because that that's the whole point, and that's uh, a great place to be in as a director. Yeah, and I love the. Again, this is where you get in trouble talking about this movie. I, I apologize if people are super religious, but this movie really takes digs at religion, and we learn it through the Stonies, that every time Norm wants to talk to Ruth, they have to stand around and pray. And there's a wonderful scene where he's trying to lead them in a family prayer where he says, palms up to Jesus, and they all pray, but an airplane flies right overhead because their house is in a shitty neighborhood right under the flight path, <laughs> and so the airplane drowns out his entire prayer, which could not be more of an Alexander Payne comedy moment. Right. And if they just pray to God hard enough, one day they, they'll have a house that isn't underneath a flight path. You know, <laughs> all, all they need to do is uh, continue delivering his grace and they'll, they'll be rewarded in heaven. Yes. But he does tell Ruth. And this is the same thing I told you at the start of the podcast. You know, God's divine hand brought you here, Ruth. So that's what I told you when you agreed to this podcast. <laughs> well, it's, uh, it's a pleasure to be doing uh, the Lord's work. 
And here we go. Great scene where Ruth is now explaining to the Stonies why she got arrested, why she's in jail. And again, I, I could not get more of a kick of Ruth being super graphic around people who are not used to this, hearing this language. And they're like, oh, tell us about your story, Ruth. And she's like, well, this guy was fucking me. And then I yelled at him like, you fucking bitch, get out of my home. And they're like, Ruth, calm down. <laughs> I love little moments like that in this movie. Yeah, Ruth is, uh, shall we say, foul mouth. You know, she uh, d- doesn't have the, the filter that the uh, the Midwestern lady uh, is accustomed to. Yes. And then we get another wonderful moment again. Ruth has been in this house for 10 minutes. And the first thing she learns is that their son builds model ships. Like he's building a, a Noah's Ark so he can, you know, recreate God's mission. But all Ruth cares about is, hey, this kid has airplane glue, model glue in his room. I can huff that later. Yeah, everywhere it's just a hardware store to her. And here she gets it for free. She doesn't even have to scrounge up the cash for it. Yeah, she's not wrong. She won the lottery. Free model glue. (laughs) Absolutely. Okay, so here we go. So it's the first night in the stony house. And Ruth thinks she's won the lottery. These nice conservative Christians have adopted her. And she doesn't realize that she's only a symbol to them, that they're going to use her to send a message to the, you know, pro-choice crowd. But... uh, the first night there, uh, this is where we see once again the hypocrisy of this family, that the Stonies are super Christian and very laid back, but their daughter is like a huge slut and drug user who sne- sneaks out of the house every night to be with her boyfriend. And Ruth joins her on the first night. Exactly. There was no way that if this uh, this family had a daughter in the movie that she would be in any way wholesome whatsoever. You know, you, you know that there's some... Uh, yeah, but behind the repressed, uh, abstinence-only uh, nonsense, there's got to be something bursting to come out. Yeah, so Ruth goes out with the daughter, gets high, passes out because she's <laughs> of a bong. So Ruth really, again, once again, no story arc to Ruth whatsoever in this movie. And the next movie, the next morning is pivotal. This is where the Stonies are going to take her to their pro-life doctor. And Ruth is still hung over from the night before. She couldn't give a shit. In fact, she even asked, can I have a cigarette? They're like, oh, no, no smoking in our house. <laughs> but here's the scene you talked about earlier. Or I, I think this is the one you were alluding to where they meet the pro-life doctors. Yeah, and this is uh, filmed uh, for a lot of it from Ruth's perspective, and you can tell that she is so, like, uh, addled and just completely out of it and not understanding what they're saying. And that's kind of good, because if she was understanding what they were saying and the the true agenda behind it, that would be pretty terrifying, and she'd feel very used and and abused. Instead, she's just merrily off in her own universe somewhere. (laughs) Yeah, this is one of my probably favorite three scenes in the movie, the Baby Savers Doctors. So I will paint a picture for people that Ruth goes to these doctors who are supposed to be theoretically helping her with her baby and decide what to do about little baby Tanya. That's the, they've named the baby already. But they're really just there to terrify her into never having an abortion. And Ruth, first they're very nice to her, where they talk to, oh, look at you. Oh, look at your little baby. And they pull out a little doll. This is Tanya. Tanya's inside of you. Would you like, what would you like Tanya to be when she grows up? And Ruth is nice at first, but eventually she snaps. She's like, listen, you fucking people, I'm having an abortion. And then they <laughs> they twist the knife a little bit, and then they go to the scary part of their performance. Yeah, it's like, show me on this doll where you're going to abort your baby. <laughs> yes. They show her the death movie. Oh, man. Um, uh, <laughs> describe this death movie they show her to people. Well, see, what they should have showed her is the uh, the Larry Jarvis financial plan, which uh, would, you know, if she just followed that, she could raise her baby responsibly, not have to worry about childcare costs or all of the other many logistical problems with uh, raising a child in this economy. And, you know, she, she definitely would have seen the light. Instead, they, they go for the hard sell. They show her this uh, movie with the usual graphic scenes of, uh, you know, exploding fetuses and uh, 
you know disembodied limbs and so on and it is as graphic as uh, as it needs to be and and for in, in its defense we never see the movie we just see ruth watching this movie that these you know the pro-life people show her which is all about you know fetus is being vacuumed out and we hear the narration and the narrator's like like auschwitz and dachau the abortion mills of america are murder pits they wage genocide and you see ruth's horrified face when she's half forced to watch this and the other doctors they're like looking at her just smiling knowing we got her yeah this is our vietnam <laughs> it's, it's like auschwitz yeah <laughs> thank you alexander payne <laughs> as we said subtlety not this movie strong suit and that's by design so what, what are we getting on their case for yeah and then we get this wonderful shot of ruth, ruth being shown this video about the the murder camps of abortion clinics and she just kind of looks at the camera and she's like oh my god what kind of world have i walked into here and from here on out ruth is just a pawn in everybody else's master game it reminds me of the uh the, the simpsons episode where they're trying to like scare jimmy into uh uh, becoming a vegetarian, and it's like, if a fetus got the chance, it would kill you and everyone you cared about. Uh, and that, that's why we have to kill them, you know? Uh, but th this is, uh, it, this doesn't work on Ruth. Maybe a different approach would have been uh, required here. Well, you know, it kind of does work on Ruth at the start, that they're walking out of the clinic and Laura Dern's got this great line, I slept in some dumpsters before. Maybe I slept on some babies. <laughs> <laughs> and and you can tell that even proudest as they are in uh in scaring women into having abortions they they don't know what to make of Ruth they really haven't met their match with this one. Yeah okay so Ruth is now the symbol of the pro life movement and they've adopted her and they've scared her straight she's never going to have an abortion because she's got baby Tanya inside her and baby Tanya is a wonderful human being and and so it's now going to escalate where. She finds out from the Stonies, oh, you know, the reporters have started calling about your case. Your case is making big news. And Ruth, of course, blissfully unaware that anybody even knows her situation. But apparently every pro-choice person in the country now knows that a judge has ordered her to have an abortion. Now she is the symbol of their side. And so this is where the reporters start knocking on the Stonies' door, trying to barge in and talk to Ruth. And they get maybe get more than they're bargaining for too. Uh, they uh, Ruth is not having it, and uh, they're, they're kind of flustered as they have to quickly uh, depart the scene. Yeah. Okay. I know. I, I, as an English person, you will enjoy this scene where these uh, people try to barge into the Stoney's house, and so Norm grabs his gun and he starts pointing it to them to, <laughs> so they'll run off. And then he turns around and he puts his arm around his wife and he holds his gun out in, in front of him, and the airplane goes over over her head and he rattles out all the noise. And Norm's like, "Don't worry, Ruth. You're safe here now." And that's when the national anthem starts playing in the background. Uh, yeah. Yeah. The, Alexander Payne loves playing that really patriotic music, almost sarcastically as he's making fun of his, his uh, actors. Yeah. If you look carefully, you can see a bald eagle flying to the shot in the background. Uh, but yeah, uh, <laughs> Norm, uh, he goes to bat for his people, Mario. Yeah, he, he's a, a true family man. <laughs> okay. And here we go. This is a scene. I don't know if they have this kind of stuff in England, so I am curious. We get a big scene of a day at the abortion clinic, which is basically like a Planned Parenthood, and it's a weekend. So every weekend the Stonies go out and they protest the abortion clinic with all their friends. They have a whole mob of protesters. And on the other side, there's the pro-life people, and they all meet at the abortion clinic every Saturday. And Ruth is dragged along with the pro-life pro side because they want her to help them protest the abortion clinic. So... Is this the kind of stuff you'd see in other countries, or is this a specific American phenomenon, the weekly, weekend showdown at the abortion clinic? You would see it in, uh, in different countries around the world, I think. Uh, not in England and like the mainland UK, where uh, abortion is fairly normalized, and you have the usual band of uh, 
diehard religious people who uh, make their presence known. But uh, at least in uh, in the UK, it's not really a thing like that. And even elsewhere, where there is strong religious opposition to abortion, often abortion is just banned outright. So this this question doesn't even arise, or it kind of manifests another way. But the idea of making it like this this public spectacle with uh, protesters and cannon protesters and so on. That that does feel like an American thing, for sure. <laughs> yeah, and Alexander Payne wastes no time making fun of it by they're screaming murder, baby killer, and then everybody retreats to the side because they have donuts. So it's like a big party. <laughs> oh, and yeah, if you, you want to prove that this scene is American, that, that just uh, is the nail on the carpet. <laughs> yeah. So, again, you got the two sides of the abortion debate. Meet at this abortion clinic every weekend, and I don't know if you've seen the uh, old cartoon with the, uh, what is it, the coyote and the sheepdog. Mm-hmm. And like every morning they show up and they punch cards next to each other at the timestamp. And like, hey, morning, Earl, morning, Norm. And then they go out and they try to kill each other the entire day. Then at the end of the day, they go and clock out next to each other. Hey, good day. See you later. See you tomorrow. Like that's exactly what this abortion clinic is like. They, everybody knows each other. They just do the same thing every weekend. Yeah, uh, but between uh, shift, they're just like resting on their signs, catching up, you know, seeing how, ma- making small talk. And then as soon as a, a car arrives in the parking lot, it, it's back to, to yelling and then yelling over the other one and, and so on and so forth. Okay, so Ruth is at this protest and she's being actively encouraged to go taunt and yell at young women trying to get an abortion. And Ruth, again, could not give less of a shit about any of this. <laughs> she just wants to not go to jail. So she excuses herself because she's not feeling well. And they send her the Stony Sender off to a car. And this is where we find the tape, the wonderful plot device that goes through this whole movie. And you already mentioned earlier the Larry Jarvik's financial system. Absolutely. And Ruth, uh, it's not like when she's being urged to, uh, to to boo the women who are going to the clinic, it's not like she's having a flash of empathy, seeing herself in, the, in their situation and feeling bad for them and understanding how manipulative these people are who are urging her to do this. She just wants to go somewhere quiet and get high. Uh, that, that, that's a real motivation here. Yeah. And while she's sitting in a car, she finds a tape in Norm Stoney's car. It's basically how to own your own house with no money down. And it's like this uh, Amway-type sales pitch. And so she listened to this. She's like, wow, I want to own my own house someday. And this will be her motivation through the rest of the movie. She wants to own a house so she can get high. (laughs) So she will listen to this tape on a little uh, headset that she wears, her little Walkman, and it will go throughout the rest of the movie. But she's about to uh, lose her protection from the Stonies because something bad's going to happen because as she's locked in the car, she finds Gail Stoney's purse, steals money and goes out and buys some more spray paint. <laughs> I feel like if Alexander Payne was truly being ambitious here, he could have done a lot more with this, uh, Larry Javits financial plan concept. And you, you could embed this multi-level marketing scheme in the middle of your movie, in the middle of your, uh, directorial debut that, that would really get some attention and, and get some headlines you know what's funny is he really does in the movie about schmidt they really turn that into a subplot <laughs> two movies later where the son-in-law is part of an amway scheme and every time he's talking to someone he'll always say it's not a pyramid scheme that's the first thing he always says yeah if you want to learn how to get rich quick just uh, mail ten dollars uh and a self-addressed <laughs> envelope too yeah yeah and that's why i say this movie is like a trilogy Citizen Ruth, Election, About Schmidt. Everybody should see all three of them because they're all kind of set in the same universe and a lot of the props and the characters and the themes overlap within the movies. That's my, my, my biggest point here. Now, Mario, when we talk about nostalgia, did you get a funny feeling in your loins seeing an actual live videotape for the first time in God knows how long? Oh, yes, it was fantastic. I loved it. <laughs> You're talking about the little cassette tape, right? Yeah, th- th- this movie in so many ways is definitely a relic of the 90s and it... 
I, I don't know if this movie could be made nowadays for many reasons, but it definitely feels like a product of the times for sure. Yeah, the little Ruth, her little financial system is on audio tape, a cassette tape, and she will listen to it. And again, it, this is her white whale, this uh, financial system that she will never actually hear the end of. She just <laughs> blindly leads towards it. But anyway, so uh, Ruth has been left alone. She gets high. She... Oh, I forget. This isn't the model, the, the spray paint. This is the model glue that she stole from the little boy in the house. She gets high and the little boy finds her. He's like, hey, Ruth, what are you doing? And in a wonderful scene and for acclaimed actress, Ruth Dern, she punches a little boy and says, shut up, you little fucker. Snitches get stitches, Mario. <laughs> yes. Yeah, snitches get stitches. <laughs> she punches a little boy. The, the Stonies come over and said, why would you punch our son? You're, there are demons in you. And I think here's the, the quote, the exact quote where Norm Stoney kicks her out of the house. The glue is the devil. You have got the devil inside you. You are full of sin and disease. <laughs> I don't have the devil. You just raise a knock at a grip. <laughs> yes, sir. Ruth for punching a little boy is kicked out of the Stoney's house and they're like you can't stay in our house anymore and they're like well what do we do we can't throw her on the street and this is where we get the other fantastic character in the movie that they had the Stoney's have a little sidekick Diane played by Swoozy Kurtz very acclaimed actress from her era as well and she's like oh you know I'll take her in she can come back to my house and she's got this wonderful Minnesota accent and we we're going to learn very quickly Diane is not actually a baby saver she's a spy for the pro-choice movement She's one of those dastardly lesbians, yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, we'll get to that. That's the scene that always makes me laugh. Okay. So so Diane is this Midwestern housewife who's driving Ruth over to her house. And as they're pulled up to a stoplight, another one of these scenes where Ruth is being inappropriate in front of these, you know, uptight Midwest types, where Diane's like, oh, Ruth, tell me about you. Where are you from? And as they're parked at the stoplight, Ruth's boyfriend pulls up next to them. And he's like, you bitch, I'm going to kill you, you bitch. And she's like, suck the shit out of my ass, you fucker. And Diane's like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and then Diane's like, who was that? And Ruth's like, I don't know, some guy. <laughs> I think I've seen him around somewhere. So here we go. So Ruth has been kidnapped by the pro-choice, that the pro-choice movement has had a spy within the baby savers all these years. Diane takes her back to the house. We meet Diane and her partner slash lesbian wife, Rachel, played by Kelly Preston, a.k.a. John Travolta's wife. And Ruth freaks out because she has no idea what's going on now. Now she's become a pawn of the pro-choice side. Yeah, and we'll see her uh, joining a prayer to the, uh, the, the moon goddess very shortly. <laughs> yes. So... So now Ruth is in the home of the lesbian activists that are the pro-choice movement. And again, they're going to be just as fanatical over their cause as the pro the Stonies were, which is why this movie is a little unique because we don't try to, you know, moralize one side being better than the other, that both sides are completely whacked with just whacked with power that Ruth has to become their symbol. And Ruth wants no part of this. This is the, the scene where she, uh, She's trying to fight them, the two lesbians. And Ruth is like, Laura Dern's like splayed on the ground, kicking her legs. Like, she's just ridiculous looking. Yeah, this is a kind of uh, erotic material that uh, Norm Stoney in his day would have uh, lapped up, for sure. <laughs> yeah, so Diane pulls off her wig and her glasses and she drops her Midwest accent. And she's like, you know, there's a war going on, Ruth. And the baby savers, they're using you to support their cause and attack the judge. And if they can keep you from getting the abortion that you want, that you chose, it's a big symbolic victory for them. So and now Ruth's story has started to make the news. Like all these uh, pro-choice people are rallying around Ruth as her cause as the biggest abortion story in the country. And this is when we get one of my favorite scenes where 
uh, uh, Gail Stoney calls up to talk to Diane, and Ruth spoils the, the uh, how would I phrase this? And Ruth spoils the, uh, the surprise that Diane's a spy almost immediately over the phone. Yeah, she, she's carefully cultivated this, this double agent act for, what, what is it she said, nine months? And then in, in an instant, Ruth just blows up her entire spot. <laughs> yeah, so Gail calls to talk to her friend Diane. Oh, Diane, how you doing? And Ruth picks up the phone and talks to her former, you know, <laughs> mentor, benefactor. And he's like, listen, Gail, you want to send a message? I ain't no fucking telegram, bitch. <laughs> it's like, oh, my God. <laughs> Ruth's like, you're the fool. Diane is a spy. And then she slams down the phone and calls her the C word, I believe. And she turns to Diane and says, how'd I do? <laughs> what? Did she pass? Did I get, did I, did I get, uh, did I get the role? <laughs> yes. Ruth has blown up everybody's spot that everyone knows that it's now the pro choice against the pro life. And the whole rest of the movie is now a standoff as the baby savers will come and surround the ranch of the pro choice lesbians. And everyone's having a big standoff over who's going to get Ruth's vote at the end. Yeah, and uh, before long, we'll meet Harlan, who's like this uh, gruff uh, veteran who's uh, kind of running interference for the pro-choice side, and uh, we'll meet some of the other characters on the other side, too. And this is the point in the movie where Ruth kind of recedes from being the focus. It's not really about Ruth anymore, and it's more about the the wider movement and the wider struggle but ruth uh you know being being ruth finds a way to insert herself into it uh regardless yes ruth is wandered into a battle that has been going on for decades that we get the sense the, the sense that these people have been fighting for years and ruth has just wandered into their battlefield and so yeah all the pro-choice people in the stonies surround the house and they have a vigil and they call in the news and they call in a national alert or like the National Organization of Baby Savers will all fly into Omaha to support Ruth's cause. And they call the cops. They're like, Ruth is being kidnapped. And this is where we get the scene earlier where all the baby savers come and they surround, you know, uh, Diane and, and Rachel. And Diane's like, well, Rachel's my wife. We're not part of you. We're married. And they kiss. And like all the pro-choice people just go, ooh, and they step back. <laughs> It really is like a pantomime audience, you know, there's like this call and response going on at all times. Yeah, they had no idea how to re how to react to a pair of lesbians in their town. So it's like they're such different worlds. And again, Ruth has no point in this story whatsoever. She could go home and it wouldn't matter. Everyone's just taking their sides. And from here on out, it's just an escalation of tactics until the end. And Ruth is looking for an excuse to vanish with the, the, the tens of thousands of dollars that she's being promised. You know, she wants nothing more than to get out of there. And yet she's almost being held hostage by both sides who need to use that as an example. Okay, so here we go. So I'm going to skip through a couple scenes just because I'm going to get to the bigger picture of this movie. Is that so the baby savers have called in their national president, this guy named Blaine Gibbons, played by Burt Reynolds, who's fantastic. This is big, over-the-top preacher guy who has a, a young boy slathering oil on him at all times. I love that little detail. <laughs> you wonder if uh, Burt Reynolds requested that to be written into the movie or if that was uh, Alexander Payne's own personal touch. Oh, we find out his little servant boy is a former uh, baby they saved. He was going to be aborted. They saved him and he was raised to become Burt Reynolds' oil spreader. Yeah, this is a it, this is a, a favorite tactic. It's a, you know the the entire cast reveals themselves. All have been babies that were saved by the the baby savers, and that, you know that's the the big dramatic reveal. But uh, in, instead, we just get this rather kind of uh, creepy relationship between Bert and his. I don't even know what you would call his uh, his oil buddy. <laughs> I think on a pirate ship they called them peg boys. I think I I don't want to get canceled, but I think that's the term. 
Yeah, sure, we'll, we'll, we'll go with that. Okay, so, yeah, Burt Reynolds has shown up as the national spokesman, and now Tippi Hedren, who you may, you may know him from The Birds, is flown in. She plays Jessica Weiss, the national president of the uh, of the pro-choice movement, and she flies in, and all of a sudden everyone's like, oh my god, this is a really big story now. Like, the two national spokespeople of this movement are now having a battle in Omaha over you, Ruth. And so this is where they start telling Ruth, you know, this is no longer about you, Ruth. This is about the choice of millions of American women. And Ruth's like, why? What did I do? And they're like, no, no, you did nothing. Just just do not give any interviews. We will handle this. And I, there's a lovely point of hypocrisy here where, where uh, ABC News calls and one of the lesbians, Rachel, picks up and she says, Ruth is not giving interviews. This is a private matter, even though it's the biggest news story in the country. Yeah, not everything is about you, Ruth. God. Yeah. Don't be selfish, Ruth. This is about abortion rights now. Have a sense of perspective. And of course, all throughout this, all Ruth cares about is searching through this house, looking for things to huff, because she has no story arc. And you would think, given the uh, you know the, uh, the the demographics of the people she's staying with, there would be she'd be spoiled for choice of, of things to huff. <laughs> but instead, you know, there's a uh, you know there's maybe a bowl lying around somewhere. There, there, there's stuff she can partake in, but uh, she she doesn't really find what she's looking for. She does find a vibrator at one point, but she has no use for it. Yeah, you can't really huff that, as far as I know. Although maybe Ruth is more inventive than uh, I'm aware of. Where there's a will, there's a way, Dom. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so. All the baby savers, all the pro-life people in the country have flown into Omaha, and we have this big spectacle. They're having a huge festival. They all meet at this motel. Sharp-eyed viewers will realize it's the same motel from about uh, from Election, where Matthew Broderick meets his uh, buddy's wife for an affair. It's the exact same motel. But they, like, they all shake hands. They all know each other, and they're like sharing war stories of their abortion battles over the, over the whole country. And one says, I just came back from Florida and the tomb of the unknown baby. <laughs> yeah, I, I love that. that. That was a great touch. Now, as an as a foreigner, you probably think that's ridiculous. There is no tomb of the unknown baby in the U.S. I can guarantee you there probably is somewhere. Oh, yeah. Look, we're in 2020 at this point. I would believe anything. You know, I, I would be as gullible as you uh, need me to be on that count. <laughs> OK, so the baby savers have a press conference. They're like, you know, this radical leftist you know, pro-choice movement has kidnapped Ruth and they're forcing her to have an abortion. And they have a huge national press conference where they raise money now. This is where we start getting the ethics of this movie and how how much they really care about Ruth whatsoever. That the pro-choice or the, pro, the pro-life movement raises $15,000. All the donors from around the country have phoned in and they're like, Ruth, if you do not abort this baby, if you have this baby, we will present you with a check for $15,000. And then they add this great bit of irony because we want to make sure money is not an object. And I love the scene, too, where uh, the, the news anchors become aware of this and they report that, uh, that there are fundraising efforts going on. To uh, And it's unclear how Ruth is going to come down. Now. And you see her like loudly, visibly celebrating in the background, <laughs> bursting out of the door uh, in the eyes of all the cameras. Yeah, this is a typical alexander payne great visual gag where the reporters are like so ruth stoops has been presented with fifteen thousand dollars if she chooses not to abort her baby no word yet on how ruth will respond and literally right behind the reporter if you look in the background you see ruth jumping up and down saying yes yes i'll take it yes yes 
Yeah, and Diane and, and Rachel, they're, they're seasoned media operators at this point. They, they've been around the block a few times. But again, Ruth, it just seems like so unlike anything they've ever dealt with before that they, they can't physically restrain her and they can't like verbally restrain her either. She's just like this whirling dervish uh, off doing her own thing. Well, yeah, and it's very typical as as Diane and Rachel are watching the news. Ruth has left the frame and is jumping around behind them in the TV, in the view of the TV cameras. And again, they don't even notice, even though this is theoretically all on Ruth's behalf. They don't even notice she's not there anymore. Right. Even though this is uh, normally about Ruth, uh, Ruth, once again, just becomes an afterthought in this uh, larger struggle. All right. Now, here's where the movie's going to turn serious. And it doesn't turn serious that much, but I really think it makes a good point here where Ruth is pulled back and Diane and Rachel, again, these are the pro-choice people, sit her down. And this is a really wonderful discussion. I, I wrote this down word for word because I wanted to talk about it, where they say, don't take that check, Ruth. You have to be very strong. You've made your decision, and now you have to stick to it. And Ruth says, it's my body, right? It's my choice. And they're like, yes, of course it's your choice, Ruth, but you, can, you have to make it for the right reasons. And then she says, God damn it. How come every time I try to do something I want, somebody keeps, it from, keeps me from doing it? Why can't I ever do what I want? And so they keep reminding her, it's your choice. You have to do this the right way. And she's like, what if my choice is to take the money? And they're like, no, that's the wrong choice. And so like, it honestly does make a pretty good point here. Yeah, and it's uh, a lot more subtle than the rest of the movie, I suppose, which is uh, kind of grading on a low curve. But it is making a valid point that like, Ruth is being very cynically used by the pro-choice side as well uh, as part of their... And she's not their ideal figurehead. If they could have someone who was more presentable, more more put together, who would have a better sob story to tell. Uh, and that's what I think is kind of actually bold about this movie is that Ruth is... Every stereotype of the the kind of unfit mother who is just having abortions left and right... Ruth is that person. You know, Ruth is whatever bad things you want to say about her. And uh, the larger message of the story is that's not the point. E even granting all of that, even in the absolute worst case, it's a question about the rights that people should have and uh, you know, the ethical implications. And it's not about uh, the kind of gory personal details, which are not really our business to begin with. Yeah. And again, it goes back to the point. This is not a movie about abortion. It's a movie about fanaticism that what happens to the individual rights when those get forgotten in, in favor of the bigger picture. That's the whole point of this movie. Yeah, I mean, the, the entire concept behind rights is that sometimes people make choices that don't align with what you want them to do. That is what it means to have a choice. And uh, Ruth is uh, really pushing that principle to its limits. And, and to be fair, the pro-choice people really do kind of win Ruth over. They're like, you're just being bought. All they want to do is buy you. Yeah, you're getting $15,000. And you, but I mean, but it's not setting the good example. We want like if you t don't take that money, it'll send a great message to the pro-life movement that you can't be bought. And this is where Ruth snaps. Yeah. And Ruth is like, "Hell yeah, I'm being bought. What's your offer? Do you have do you have a, a higher price? Like, let, let's let's go. Let's keep the bidding going here." <laughs> and that's exactly what happens. The pro-choice people have this guy Harlan, played by M.C. Ganey, who's a ex-Vietnam vet. He's like, Ruth is like, "What are you going to give me fifteen thousand dollars, bitch?" And Harlan's like, yeah, I am. You, they'll pay you $15,000 to have the baby. I'll pay you $15,000 to abort it. I have money saved up from Vietnam from an Agent Orange settlement. Here, I'll do that. Now, money is not an object anymore. Once again, proving by offering more money, money is not an object. 
Yeah, Harlan uh, calls her bluff and she's kind of uh, a bit surprised and taken aback by it. But then Harlan quickly realizes that uh, Ruth is happy to raise the stakes. And so when there's a new offer on the table of, you know, we're going to give her $30,000, it's like, oh, well, I guess we're getting the wallet out again. Like They, they know that Ruth is going to drive uh, a harder bargain than you would give her credit for just by looking at her and interacting with her. Well, yeah. And again, you think about this logically. If you were Ruth, you would too. All you care about is who's going to give you the most money. Nobody cares about you. Yeah, Ruth is the swing vote, basically. She gets to set her own price. <laughs> There's a wonderful moment here. You kind of alluded to it right there where Ruth says, where they say, uh, okay, Ruth, if you have your baby and give it up for adoption, we'll pay you 15000 Harlan says, well, I'll pay you $15,000 if you don't. And Ruth's like, wow, they're offering me fifteen. You're offering me fifteen. So if I have the baby, then I can have thirty, right? And Harlan's like, no, no. One or the other, Ruth, don't, we're not doubling your money here. And it's great that you could believe that Ruth generally didn't understand how those offers are meant to work, and it has to be lectured on the implications, although she is being completely uh, shameless and just uh, trying to milk this for everything it's worth. And it turns out she will win in the end. She'll be able to have her cake and eat it, too. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, so Harlan, the pro-choice, he's like their bodyguard, has offered Ruth all this money, and the pro-choice people flip out they're like no 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 we cannot be offering her money to have an abortion that sets a terrible example and ruth's like fuck you bitch i want the money <laughs> so it becomes this big ethical thing and they're like all right ruth you can take harlan's money but nobody can know about this ever ever do you understand what a big deal this is no one can ever find out and ruth's like yeah whatever bitch give me a pen and paper i gotta write down the details so right. again ruth does not learn anything <laughs> It is also poking around the edges of the principles of uh, the pro-choice camp, too, where uh, if if you truly think this is just like an ethically neutral procedure and there's there's no moral value about it one way or the other, why not pay her to do it? Like, what, what's really uh, what, what's the worst that could happen with that? Uh, and uh, once again, Ruth is here to remind them exactly what the worst that could happen is. Yeah. OK, so the last half hour of the movie is really this just this ethical dilemma and the idea of money is the pro Life movement has offered her 15. The pro-choice has countered with 15. Then the pro-life raises it to $27,000 because they really want to, uh, you know, win Ruth over and win the hearts and minds of America. And again, all Ruth cares about is she's about to make a lot of money. She couldn't give a crap about anybody. But we get a really interesting scene here that drives the realism of this movie home where Harlan sits her down and he explains to her, you know, you think you're going to buy a house with that money, Ruth. We both know it's going to be gone in three days because you're a meth head. Also, I, I guess if you're making this movie in 1996, the idea of $15,000 going any way towards buying your house is maybe a little more realistic than it is nowadays, where I, I guess, you know, that's 20% of the way towards a deposit in some urban areas. <laughs> I don't know. Well, okay, maybe in Nebraska in the 90s, although Ruth is a little comically naive thinking for, for $15,000, she can buy a house and a car and vacation to California. Yeah, and have enough uh, just for a few cans of glue uh, on the side. <laughs> you could get a hell of a lot of brake fluid, so more power to her for that. I guess if you're buying in bulk too, you know, that you get a pretty substantial discount when you're trucking $15,000 at it. But yeah, that's one of the reasons why I like this movie. And it's all cynical and Alexander Payne as he makes fun of everybody. But there's some really dramatic real scenes here. And this is one that I love where Harlan sits Ruth down. Again, I talked about it where... She's like, you know, you got a girlfriend, Harlan? He's like, yeah, I don't want, I'm not interested in you. You're a, you know, a, a drug user. Screw you. And she's like, fuck you, man. He's like, look, Ruth, I know you think that money is going to change your life. You're going to buy a house. We both know it's gone in three days tops. And Ruth gets pissed, even though Harlan's right. 
Yeah, and they both know he's right, and yet he's the one carving up the money anyway, out of you know a sense of maybe obligation or you know if it was just him, it, he wouldn't be doing this as a charitable donation. But uh, because it's not Ruth, it's uh, her the role that Ruth plays in this uh, in this movement. You know that's what he's subsidizing basically, and he knows that, and so he kind of feels more freedom to unload on Ruth because she's just a, an avatar for all of this. She, she's not like a natural person. Yeah, and to be fair, Harlan does security at the abortion clinic every day, so he hates this pro-life crowd, the bullies, the ones that try to shame all these women out of getting abortions. So Harlan's thing is, I just hate these rich assholes coming in and paying everybody off, so I'm offering my money just to balance them out. So he's got a stake in this as well, which, again, has nothing to do with Ruth. He just doesn't want to see them win again. All right, so here we are in the movie that Ruth is now being... Uh, she is now the target of a bidding war from both sides. They're both trying to woo her into their particular cause. And this is where uh, Burt Reynolds, Blaine Gibbon, shows up for a press conference live outside the house where he says, basically, Ruth, we're raising the offer to $27,000. And he's like, we're praying for you, Ruth. Money should not play a factor in your decision. <laughs> and Ruth is going crazy. $27,000. She could buy like 10 houses for that much money. Yeah, that, that's an entire van full of brake fluid. You know, it's uh, untold riches. <laughs> yes. And once again, the pro-choice ladies sit her down and say, uh, you can't do this, Ruth. You're not taking that money. And she's like, why not, bitch? And they're like, and you have to stop drinking. Why do you keep drinking? And Ruth's like, why? What am I going to do? Hurt the baby that you want me to abort? Which I thought was a perfectly good point, actually. <laughs> yeah, it's really difficult to have a good comeback to that. Yeah, she's like, you want to kill my baby. What do I care? My body belongs to me. And so they basically send Ruth off to bed and say, sleep it off. And, and Ruth says, eat me dyke, which is a wonderful phrase to come out of your, your leading lady's mouth. But here we go. We're about to get to the uh, denouement of the plot here that Ruth is something's going to happen to Ruth. that's going to change this story immensely. Yeah, so uh, after all of this hullabaloo over will she, won't she, is she going to have the baby, and whatever internal struggle Ruth herself was actually having about that, uh, she wakes up uh, as she, just before she's meant to go to the clinic and discovers that she's, uh, she's miscarried the baby. Yes, the uh, denouement of the plot. All these people fighting over baby Tanya, Ruth's eight-week-old fetus, and Ruth has a miscarriage, and nobody knows, and all of a sudden they're still fighting over her, but there's no baby to fight over anymore. And and Ruth being Ruth, she sees an opportunity to get her grift on, uh, because if if no one knows about this, then as far as they know, the stakes are still the same. And so she can maybe get away with like uh, pocketing some of the money and she doesn't even have to go through with the abortion. She doesn't have to back out at the last second. That decision is already out of her hands, but the money is maybe set on the table. <laughs> yeah. And OK. And in Ruth's defense, I have to say there's one moment here where she kind of behaves like a human being. And she's abort like her. She's had a miscarriage. She's lost the baby. And Diane, the pro-choice lady who's been taking care of her, walks up and says, how you doing, Ruth? And Ruth is going to tell her, I lost the baby. Because Ruth feels bad that she went through this. But right as she's starting to say that, Diane is distracted by a walkie-talkie where they say, it's time to take Ruth for her abortion now. And so Ruth realizes she's not important in anybody's plan. Diane is distracted, not even listening to what she's saying. And from here on out, like you said, it's a grift. Ruth is going to screw everybody. Yeah, and the thing about this uh, procedure, too, is that ultimately no one's uh, standing there in the in the doctor's surgery with her checking to see what was actually going on. You know, it's kind of a black box that they're looking at from the outside. And so they don't actually know what what Ruth is doing. They almost have to take her word for it, even though Ruth's word is not reliable in the slightest. <laughs> and she knows that and she can uh, milk that as much as she likes. 
Okay, here we go. I'm going to paint the picture for people. The last 10 minutes of this movie, which again, has got to be one of the greatest movie endings of all time. So Ruth is now being rushed. All the pro-choice moving in their security, gather around Ruth, and they rush her out to a helicopter where the head of the pro-life movement, Tippi Hedren, Jessica Weiss, is there. And Jessica Weiss says, nice to meet you. You're a very brave and special woman. And Ruth, once again, cannot hear her because the helicopter just says, what? Which pretty much sums up her relationship with the pro-choice camp. And uh, it, it turns out that the, the, the pro-life site has brought out the big guns, namely uh, Ruth's mom, who, who makes her, her first and uh, last appearance in this movie. Oh, God, you want a big laugh. Here we go. I wish I could have seen this in the theater. So Ruth's mom is there. She's been driven into town. The baby savers have called her in as one last ditch effort to keep Ruth from getting this abortion. And as Ruth is getting in the helicopter, her mom pulls out a megaphone, says, Ruth, Ruthie, honey, don't do it. And Ruth is like, mom. And Ruth is stunned. She probably hasn't seen her mom in 20 years. And again, we are about to learn the depths of her dysfunctional childhood here. <laughs> would you like to do this one or, would I, or do you want to leave it to me? Uh, I'll, uh, the floor is yours, Mario. Okay, so, so Ruth's mom, again, in front of hundreds and hundreds of Midwesterners, calm, genteel, conservative Midwesterners, Ruth's mom screams, Ruth, what if I had aborted you? And Ruth screams back over her megaphone, well, at least I wouldn't have had to suck your boyfriend's cock. <laughs> And even fewer good responses to that one, ultimately. And if uh, if there was any doubt over uh, how Ruth ended up the way she did, it's no accident. There may be a little generational trauma uh, at play here. Yeah, and again, I know we're laughing at that. We're laughing at child abuse, but that's the whole point of Alexander Payne movies. They make you laugh and cringe and think and be sad and be amazed all at the same time. And that line right there, you know so much about Ruth's backstory. Oh, my God. And that just played off as a joke, but I love how blunt that is, that that one line. And the entire media, all the national media, hears that line and all the people in Nebraska, and they're all like, <gasps> yeah, And this is... Uh... Ruth, uh, Ruth's mother's uh, first moment in the spotlight and is getting owned in the most comprehensive way possible by her daughter in front of the, uh, the national media. <laughs> yes. So then Ruth, Ruth flips off her mom, says F you, gets in the helicopter, and they race off to the abortion clinic for the, the abortion of baby Tanya, who, again, doesn't even exist anymore. She had a miscarriage. But it's all just a big chase from here on out. It's the pro-choice movement landing at a parking lot, getting in a limo, the entire cavalcade of pro-life people storming after them. And we're going to have this big brouhaha at the abortion clinic, just like earlier in the movie, only 10 times bigger. We're like practically every pro-life and pro-choice person are outside this arena, this clinic screaming at each other. And once uh, Ruth gets into the clinic, it's a welcome respite from all of that. But now is kind of where she has to either uh, go out and get her story straight and, and have you know, one side uh, love her and one side be mad at her, or she has to, to plan her escape. And uh, she, she chooses the, the third option there. I believe the American term you're searching for is she, ha she has to shit or get off the pot. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of shitting and getting off the pot, so Ruth goes to the abortion clinic and she barricades herself in the bathroom. And again, I forgot this little detail that she's in the bathroom trying to decide what to do. Like, I have no baby to abort, so I can't give birth. I can't abort. I'm kind of screwed here. All she knows is that Harlan has left $15,000 for her in the bathroom behind the toilet. So she grabs that. We get the hallelujah montage as she opens it and sees her money. And then 
I forgot about this detail. All the pro-choice people are distracted because Jessica Weiss is out in the lobby talking about her book. So they've even stopped paying attention to Ruth at this point. Yeah, and Jessica Weiss is just using this as a blatant uh, opportunity for self-promotion as, you know, and but by this point in the movie, you're not surprised that any any given character is just taking the most cynical route possible with uh, the, the media chances they have. And so while all of them are distracted, Ruth sees an opportunity to, to plot her escape and uh, she kind of like inches herself out of the, the window. And I, I actually love this uh, this scene in particular where uh, she looks down and she sees that there's a guard there and she has to like take a slab from inside the bathroom and drop it on his head uh, to like incapacitate him and like inch her way out of the out of the window, fall to the ground, and then as the guy is kind of blurrily getting up, she she produces the gun, which we didn't know she had, points it at him, uh, threatens him, and then then runs away. And that is completely superfluous. There is no reason for that to be in the movie, but by this point, you've seen Ruth being used as this this pawn in, in this uh, political struggle. You've seen her miscarry the baby, and uh, there will be people in the audience who are maybe starting to regain a little bit of their sympathy for Ruth. And this is Alexander Payne saying, no, 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 don't, 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 don't you be under any illusions about who Ruth is uh, in her, her final moments here. Uh, and then once that guy's out of the way, no one else is paying attention to her and she's free to, to calmly walk off into the distance. <laughs> yeah, again, just such a wonderfully cynical Alexander Payne ending that Ruth is surrounded. There's so many people at this abortion clinic all fighting over Ruth's rights. That Ruth can't go anywhere. There's no way she could get out and not be seen. But she just kind of lowers her head and walks out right between all the protesters. And nobody even knows who the hell she is. She's so anonymous. They're all fighting for her rights. They don't even know who she is. She walks right past all the protesters, runs away. And that's the end of the movie that Ruth escapes and nobody even knows she's gone. (laughs) (laughs) Although one little detail I got to point out here that I love. This is a little Alexander Payne detail that to get out of the bathroom the window is stuck. Ruth can't get out of the bathroom. She can't get out of the abortion clinic because the window is all jammed. Luckily, in her bag, she has a can of brake fluid that she has tried to huff <laughs> earlier in the movie. And she uses the brake fluid to spray on the window and open the joint. So the brake fluid saves her life. It's forward thinking. You never know when it's going to come in handy. <laughs> and that's the end of the movie. Ruth escapes with the money, runs off. Nobody even knows that she left. They're all still fighting for her outside the abortion clinic. And she walks off listening to the Larry Jarvix tape about how she's going to turn this $15,000 into a house. Although we all know, as Harlan said, there's no way that's going to happen. She's going to be passed out behind a bowling alley in two days. I read an interview with uh, Laura Dern where she's fondly recalling uh, the role of, of Ruth Stoops and and noting how you know, election received so much more fanfare than Citizen Ruth did, and, and Reese Witherspoon was, was so good in uh, in that movie. And it, wouldn't it be kind of fun if there was a, a Citizen Ruth too with with uh, Witherspoon uh, in that role? And it would be oddly fitting for the franchise if we we get Citizen Ruth two here in 2020, and uh, you know, 25 years on, uh, Ruth's life is exactly the same. You know, she she didn't uh, she didn't make her millions with the with the Larry Jarvis method. She's still just uh, tweaking out in a house somewhere. Uh, you know, and she's never seen her kid. She's getting pregnant. Again, like that, that would be a good note to, to start the sequel on. I'm impressed that you think she would still be alive in 25 years. That's very forward thinking of you. I'm just being optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Ruth has lived a fine life. She's now 60. She's lived a long, successful life in many dumpsters around the Midwest. <laughs> she, she slept on lots of babies in the process. Yeah. But again, just 
there's no winners in this movie. There's no losers. Again, as I pointed out at the start, it's a Seinfeld episode. No hugging, no learning. No one's had any growth arc. I, I love to th- just the uh, thought in my head. The baby savers and the pro-choice people will at some point realize Ruth is gone, and they won't care. They'll just move on to whatever. The, they'll you know punch their time cards and leave for the day and just wait for the next big controversy. And again, nobody learned anything. Yeah, Jessica Weiss has another book signing to get to. And, you know, Ruth has already faded from view. It's not about Ruth anymore. And it never really was in some sense. And uh, it's it's good that Ruth now is out of that environment and has a chance to better herself, even though we know 100% she's not going to make use of it. What we do know is that patio sealant sales are going to skyrocket. Yeah, they really could have organized some kind of break fluid sponsorship deal with this movie. You know, some some product placement, you know, as, as Ruth is, uh, you're lying in the crack house. You, we could have the, the, the brand name in full view. Uh, but you know, this was his his first movie. So you know, give him a break. You know, he hadn't uh, he hadn't mastered all of the uh, logistics just yet. Do you know, I don't know if it's this way in Canada. You live in Canada now or in the UK that in America, in most places, you cannot buy spray paint in hardware stores anymore. It's usually behind a cage. They have to come unlock it for you because of Ruth. People like Ruth. <laughs> Not just because of Citizen Ruth. He really had a wider influence than he ever anticipated with his, uh, with his first movie. Yes. Alexander Payne had his finger on the pulse of American culture. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, the, the Ruth Stoops law, uh, pass to protect Ruth and, and people like her. But yes, I'm not kidding. You cannot buy spray paint in the U.S. in most places without contacting a store guard to unlock it for you because they don't want tweakers coming in there and stealing the spray paint. So welcome to the U.S. <laughs> yeah, well, welcome to the 90s again, I suppose. Yes, it was spray paint as far as the eye can see. Mm-hmm. So with that, we are at the end of a very, it's a short, simple, blunt movie, but man, is it a fun one. And I, again, I will say once again, if you like Alexander Payne movies, especially uh, about Schmidt or Election, you got to know this one, which is the first in that trilogy. And they all have the same themes, tropes, you know, feel, style. They're almost the exact same movie. And I just love this one. Like my wife and I have talked for years, which one we like the most. I think I like Citizen Ruth the most out of those three. She thinks she likes About Schmidt the most, but it's it's like a debate. Now, I now you haven't watched Election recently, right? Uh, no, it's been a while. From what I remember, I you can make a good case that that is a a better movie in in a technical sense. You know, it, it does it hit it it hits all the right notes. It, it does all of that stuff, maybe a little bit better. But I think Citizen Ruth is maybe the most fun and most authentic in a way because it's before he had. Uh, some of the polish that you would see in Electra and, and I, I'm guessing in some of his later work, but then also not the same like constraints of professionalism that you also have when he's a bigger name and, and has to work within more, more of a defined rubric. Uh, so with this, he gets to just uh, let it all hang out, let, let it fly free. <laughs> yes. And again, I have to point out once again, this is one of the greatest acting performances I have ever seen from anybody. I cannot say enough about Laura Dern as Ruth Stoops. I hope she hears this one day because I know, she, like you said, she herself loves this role. And I just wish more people knew about it because I cannot picture anybody else playing Ruth Stoops but her. Yeah, and for Laura Dern, she's had so many accolades and had so many uh, great roles over the years that you would understand if this one was just kind of a footnote in her career at this point, even for her. But the fact that uh, you know Laura Dern herself is still saying after all this time, yeah, that this was where I a, a role that I still fondly remember where I really cut my teeth, and uh, she she is so perfect for that character. And I, I don't know back in the context of her early career how big of a get this was for alexander payne like would he have been surprised that he was able to sign up laura dern for that role well i mean she'd already been in jurassic park like you said so yeah she's a big star 
Yeah, so uh, even then, uh, you know, she had her choice of, of what she wanted to do. She chose to do this and seemed very happy about it. And so that's a, a ringing endorsement from the, uh, the, the leading light of this movie. And once again, I have to point out that Alexander Payne has so many great movies. I love almost all of them. There's another one that is my wife's maybe favorite movie of all time called Nebraska that he did just a couple of years ago. It's not that old a movie. Now, do you know who the star of that movie is, Dom? Uh, no, I don't. That would be Laura Dern's father, Bruce Dern. Huh. It really is a, a small world, I guess. Yeah. Uh, lots of nepotism going around. But you should see that one. That one is far less cynical. That is one of the most beautiful, haunting movies I have ever seen. It's, it's almost an anti-Alexander Payne movie, but it's so cool. Yeah, it's fun that uh, he's showing that kind of range as a director, too, where you have Citizen Ruth on the one hand, and nothing else can really match citizen ruth in terms of like the tone and the content and the delivery uh but you have that like on on one end of things and then you have election which is kind of in the same vein but also has its own distinct personality and then all of the movies that have come since which cover a lot of different uh a different ground in that space so uh he's not just like a, a one-trick pony he 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 can show his uh his chops in a lot of different ways yeah and before we sign off, I just want to point out, I, there's one name I have not mentioned in this movie, is that Alexander Payne had a partner, a guy named Jim Taylor, and they were a writing team. They'd always write the movies together, and then Payne would direct them, and they were a team. So when I talk about Alexander Payne movies, I'm really talking about Payne and Taylor. But man, again, this trilogy, Citizen Ruth, Election About Schmidt, that is Alexander Payne and Jim Taylor in a nutshell. Those are all masterpieces, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. All right, so once again, I uh, want to thank you for stopping by. I know you're not in your comfort zone. This is not a movie you know as well as I do. I've probably seen this movie a hundred times over the years. I've probably introduced about 75 people to it, and they all like it. This one like is a 100% success ratio. So I just want to thank you for coming on, and I hope you indeed like it as much as I do, at least close at this point. Yeah, no problem. And not, not to cross the streams too much, but like this is your Chris Doherty. This is your, okay, I know I like this. I need everyone else to like it too. And uh, it sounds like you're doing a good job of uh, converting the masses, getting them in your own, uh, your, uh, your own religion over here. Yeah, I really hope so. Because again, that's my shtick. Like I'm cynical. I'm a smart aleck. I like making fun of stuff. But at heart, that's what Staff Picks is. I have movies that are special to me and have meant things to me over the years for various reasons. Like because there's a certain style of comedy that I think is very well done. I like people. I think they should study this to see how comedy's done. Because a movie has a lot of heart. Because it's very authentic. Because I think it's real. There's lots of different reasons. And that's the whole thing with Staff Picks. That this movie means a lot to me. And it would mean a lot to me if a lot of other people out there learned about it from this podcast and loved it too so thank you dom yeah and i think it's encouraging that uh you know everyone has their own favorite movies or, or favorite uh works of art that they could just gush about for hours on end and that they could tell you all of the intricate details that no one else has ever really noticed and uh you know they're, they're convinced they love that movie but sometimes it's maybe a tough sell to others and so i think it's a good sign of people who but don't have the same investment in it that you do are watching the movie, loving it themselves and hopefully going out and telling their, their friends and, and other people about it. too. yeah. And that's one of the things that somebody, when I first started staff picks said, you know, I like the show, but it, it becomes the Chris Farley show after a while where you're just like, Hey, remember that scene? Yeah, that was awesome. And so I'm very cognizant with not always picking someone who's like a diehard lover of a film to talk to in like in every case it's not always the same type of guest so i like to mix it up so again this was an interesting experiment to pick someone who maybe doesn't know it as well and i'm going to do that more in the future just because i find it interesting because if i'm explaining a movie to people who've never seen it it's interesting to do it with a person who's maybe learning it along with me as well yeah i'm glad that my ignorance can finally be an example to others 
Well, that's the thing. We, we all know Americans are very refined and knowledgeable, and you English people are usually ignorant and backwards. So I was happy to help you guys out. Yeah, I, I'm an aspiration. You know, I, you, you can you can aspire to, to follow in my footsteps. <laughs> yes, I'm glad you've learned about the high culture of Middle Nebraska. So congratulations. Yeah, if I ever end up there with a, a can of brake fluid in my hands, I'll sound me in good stead. Well, yeah, look for the dumpster. They're going to have a real good time. <laughs> I'll just move the babies out of the way before I uh, uh, fall asleep. <laughs> it's like Dachau back there. Watch out. <laughs> okay, I better stop. We'll quit where we're ahead here. All right. So once again, oh, oh, sorry. So how can people uh, find you if they want to hear more about you? Tell people about your podcast. Uh, well, so we, we were one of like the early Survivor podcasts, I guess, back before it was cool. And I guess it still isn't really cool. It's still incredibly nerdy, but uh, it definitely has more of a wide reach nowadays. But yeah, uh, creatively titled the Dom and Colin podcast. We've been in the game for over eight years at this point, which is kind of scary to think about. But uh, Survivor has changed a lot since then, uh, for better and for worse. A lot of it for worse, I have to say. And I know I, you need no convincing on that front. Um, but it still has a place in our hearts covering that every season and also just TV stuff in general. And we're, we're branching out doing one-offs on, we've done uh, current affairs, just various other things in that orbit too, always taking suggestions for what stuff people want to hear from as well. So if there's some uh, area of pop culture that you, you want to hear from and you want to hear analyze in way too much detail, then then hit us up and we can, uh, we can do that for you. And if you want to send me a, a foul mouth telegram, you can do that uh, on Twitter at Dom HRV. Well, you really are British. They're still selling, sending telegrams. <laughs> yeah, I have my top hat, my monocle, and everything, you know? <laughs> yeah, and all, all kidding aside, Dom and Colin are one of the oldest reality TV podcasts, and they're probably the one I've never heard anybody say anything bad about. And Dom always gives me crap about that because he doesn't believe me. But, like, I have my ears out there. I'm always listening, and I know all their reputations. And the Dom and Colin podcast has always been top-notch, and they attract a really smart crowd. So, again, they do mostly Survivor, but they do lots of other pop, cult pop culture stuff, too. So seek them out if you're just looking for a new show. Yeah, you were on uh, with me just a few weeks ago to cover Kid Nation. We had a lot of fun doing that. And that's yeah, that, that's the kind of show that we love to cover, stuff which has been lost in the passage of time, but which is, is gaining a new kind of cult following as people discover it. And we hope to uh, uh, just nudge that process along in our own way. Exactly. So thank you for joining me. And once again, everybody, my name is Mario Lanza. This is Staff Picks. If you need to reach me, you can reach me at staffpickspodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at Mario J. Lanza. Until next time, I'll be out there looking for more movies that deserve more love, and I'll be huffing a hell of a lot of paint at the same time because it's so much fun. I will talk to you guys later. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.